I'm Mark Esper, former United States Secretary of Defense and the John S. McCain Distinguished Fellow at the McCain Institute for International Leadership in Washington, D.C. Thank you for joining us. I'm proud to welcome you to the next installment of our program. Today, I'm honored to welcome an admired statesperson, accomplished leader, and longtime friend of the United States, the former Prime Minister and Home Secretary of Great Britain, Theresa May. Together, we will discuss the outcome of President Joe Biden's first trip to Europe as President of the United States and what people on both sides of the Atlantic should expect going forward. As we know, President Biden's trip began with a visit to the UK. He then transitioned to a meeting of the G7, the first in-person gathering in years due to COVID, with one of the major topics under this discussion being the People's Republic of China. President Biden also attended a NATO summit in Brussels, where China was once again on the agenda, as well as other matters such as Russian aggression in Europe and the alliance's withdrawal from Afghanistan. Lastly, President Biden met with President Vladimir Putin of Russia. In the United States, there has been a lot of discussion on how effective this meeting was in conveying a convincing message that the United States is prepared to counter Russian malign activities. It was a packed and busy agenda with a lot of tough issues on the table, from Russian aggression in Ukraine and cyberspace to the rise of China and Beijing's flaunting of international rules and norms, just to hit the highlights. And with all of this complemented by a number of G7, US, EU, and intra-NATO matters, there is much to discuss. We have a great guest today to help inform, enlighten, and guide us on these matters. Lady Theresa May has served in a variety of high-level political roles throughout her remarkable career, most notably as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and leader of the Conservative Party from 2016 to 2019. Prior to that, she served as the country's Home Secretary. She's been the Member of Parliament for Maidenhead in Berkshire since 1997. As I mentioned, Lady May has been a longtime supporter of deep transatlantic relations, so it is my honor to welcome her here today. Lady May, Teresa, welcome. Thank you very much, Mark. I'm pleased to be able to join you today. Well, thank you. And I would like to start by asking you what you made of President Joe Biden's first trip to Europe as a whole, and what message do you think he sent to America's allies and adversaries alike? Well, I think it was an important trip. And as you described just now, actually, he packed a lot into that trip, not just with the UK, the G7, but then obviously going on to the NATO summit in Europe and, uh, and then President Putin. Um, I think the very clear message that came from it was that America is back. I think for those of us who are supporters of multilateral institutions, of rules-based international order, there was a, a very clear sense um, that this American presidency sees America playing a role in, in the world in terms of that rules-based international order and those multilateral institutions, and that, the, the, that America wants once again to step up to that role of being the leader of the free world. I think, uh, so I think it was a hugely important visit in its various ways in that sense and the message that it gave of America being uh, wanting to play that role and crucially wanting to work together with us in the UK and with the, the others in Europe to ensure that we're protecting our values, promoting our values uh, and, and showing that, that we continue collectively to hold those values of democracy, um, the rule of law, um, individual freedoms, uh, and, and collectively hold those and are willing to act together in the interests of those values. So very important messages, I think, came from it. 
Well, thank you for that. And that's a great segue into my first question, because I'd like to deep dive a little bit into NATO, if you don't mind. As, as you mentioned, President Biden has spoken about the importance of reaffirming America's alliances. In my view, our alliances are an asymmetric advantage that neither Moscow nor Beijing can come close to matching. So as we look at the NATO summit specifically, are you satisfied with the deliverable, deliverables or was something missing? Well, first of all, I think you're absolutely right to, to say that the NATO alliance is of a different order to the, the situation that Russia and China have. They're single states, whereas NATO is bringing a number of states together and a, a number of states together on the basis of those shared values I just referred to, but also a shared understanding of the importance of that um, Euro-Atlantic security and, uh, and the threat, threats that oppose to it. Uh, when I, just as an aside, if you like, when I was prime minister and President Trump was elected, as you may know, I was the first leader to, to come over to the States. And one of the things I wanted very much to do was to emphasize to President Trump the importance of America being in NATO and the importance of NATO. And he committed publicly uh, to America still supporting NATO, despite the fact that obviously in the election campaign, he'd, make, he'd made some comments about NATO, which were perhaps a little more negative. So it, it is, I've always seen it as important that, that America is there in NATO and that NATO, we're, we are able to, to work together. Now, what came out of the NATO summit, I think, was that important sense. When, when you look at the communique, it sort of brings home to you actually how many areas of concern there are around the world, both in terms of geographical issues like Russia and China, um, uh, Iran, uh, but other issues like um, the, the, the whole question of terrorism, of the, the issues around cyber security, um, space was in there. I know you yourself um, have had a hand in the United States uh, role in looking at space and what needs to be done in, in that. So I think what came out of it was not just, was an important message about us being together. And in a sense, that was, that was key, but also usefully some signs of a NATO that recognizes that there are new challenges, new threats, and new ways, need to be new ways of dealing with those. And I think the work that's being done on cyber, for example, is very important. Look, I think that's a wonderful point. It's, uh, you're right in terms of the communique being so strategic and global in nature, where we're talking about issues of space. And as you rightly pointed out, I, had a, I was able to stand up the Space Force in the United States here as when I was Secretary of Defense but also China and other parts of the world, much more global than I recall when I served in NATO in the 1990s. But I thought you touched, uh, Lady May, on the most important point, and that is our values and leading with our values, which I think is critically important. Um, there, there's been some concern that some NATO members are backsliding on democracy um, in, in a, an alliance that is based on values. Uh, are you concerned about that? And what should we do to, to counter that? I think that is um, that is difficult, um, and uh, it's. I think it's what what is important is for the rest of us to actually be showing how significant those values are, and to be working with any countries that do show any sign, perhaps of of uh, moving away from what we would all see as those absolute values, not just of democracy but rule of law and uh, equality and and, and uh, freedoms, um, and be be showing. That the importance of them and, and that actually it's because we're able to hang together and, and, and with those values that we do uh, pose that very significant organization in defense terms and security terms for the whole of Europe and if you start to break that 
then actually you, you lose the um, sense of, of, of a real alliance that is able to come together and understand each other on these issues of defence and security. So I think it's, it's a question of us, and I think there's a, there's a wider issue, it's not just about um, NATO members, I think there is a wider issue in today's world for those of us that share those values to show that we are willing to stand up and protect them and, and explain why they're so important. That there's some research that I saw a little while back, which rather worryingly talked about significant numbers of young people in the US and the UK not believing that democracy is necessarily the best way to, to run things. Um, and I think we, we need to be aware of perhaps some of these changes that may be taking place and just be willing together to reinforce these messages. Yeah, very good points. Uh, those of us who grew up and lived through the Cold War recall, you know, when it was the standoff between the United States and its allies, and uh, of course the Soviet Union and its allies. And uh, thank goodness those those days are behind us, although we face new threats from, from new autocracies and authoritarian states, and I, I wanna get to that in a minute. But, uh, you know, the United Kingdom is America's closest ally. We have our special relationship that goes back decades, arguably centuries. The UK has unfortunately experienced Russian aggression firsthand, such as the poisonings of notable Russian dissidents on Eurosoil and recently the incident involving a British destroyer being harassed by Russian forces in the Black Sea. So what do you think NATO needs to do better or differently to deter Russian bad behavior? Well, I think that you're absolutely right that obviously we have um, felt that uh, that Russian presence in the sense of the action, particularly that was taken on the streets of Salisbury here in the United Kingdom, with the use of a nerve agent of a chemical weapon on our streets. And what I think was important coming out of that in terms of the response was that Russia saw that the UK working with the United States but also with our allies in the European Union and actually across the rest of the world. So beyond the NATO uh, construct, but came together, we all expelled um, Russian, uh, in quotes, diplomats uh, at the uh, intelligence officers at that time. And uh, that showed that important um, coming together of all those who, who believe that it was absolutely wrong to use a chemical weapon on the streets. And in a sense, it's that sort of strength of being an alliance that I think NATO has and NATO needs to continue to, uh, to emphasize. And of course, we do that, NATO does it in a variety of ways, not least, of course, in the uh, way that it has increased its presence on, uh, you know, in states that do border on Russia. When I was prime minister, I visited UK troops in Estonia doing a, an excellent job uh, and uh, giving real comfort and real um, sense of support to people in that country as other NATO troops are doing elsewhere uh, and in the Baltic states and elsewhere, um, but also giving a very clear message to Russia that, that, that NATO is there, that NATO does work together and that, that, that NATO has that sense of a clear purpose. I remember during my tenure, the, the presence of uh, British troops, as you mentioned, up in the Baltics, how reassuring it is to those frontline states to know that they're not on their own, that, uh, that other allies are there supporting them physically, and that makes a world of difference to them. You know, in addition to the poisonings by Russia, we have cyber attacks, military actions in Ukraine and Georgia, numerous violations of, of Moscow's international commitments and so on. Do you think that President Biden met President Putin too early and 
And what is your assessment of the meeting? Was it successful? I don't think it was too early a meeting. I think it's important that that um, relationship, if you like, it's difficult to call it a relationship in, in a sense, because that's quite a, a one sense is that's a positive word, but that, 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 uh, that coming together of the United States and Russia, I think was important. Because I think it's important in dealing with Russia from a very early stage to send some very clear messages. I think uh, one of the, the, the dangers is if you don't have those clear messages, if you don't um, have that sense of what is white and what is wrong um, in relation to Russian behavior, um, then they, can, they will seize opportunities. Uh, I think we slightly saw that in, in the Crimea. I think it's important that we continue to support um, the Ukraine uh, in relation to, uh, you know, to, to uh, Russian, uh, potential Russian intentions in, in that area. So I think it was important to have that meeting and to give some clear messages to President Putin from President Biden. Um, and, but, but also, I think, the, the, as I was saying earlier, I think another important message that was outside of that meeting was the whole stance that America was taking in their approach to the G7 and in their approach to NATO, the NATO summit. So it, it wasn't just what took place in that meeting that was important. It was also that wider sense um, of America working with its allies in Europe on the defense of Europe, but also on these other issues, other issues as well. If you were back at number 10 uh, in your old role when President Biden came through prior to meeting Putin, what might you have advised him privately with regard to dealing with Putin? Any, anything you might want to share with us? <laughs> well, I'm not sure if I was advising him privately, I should be sharing it, but, uh, but I, think, I think that it's really uh, the, the same as some of the messages that I've just been giving, which is that um, it, it, it is important to be clear with Russia uh, and to, you know, to say, no, this is as we did with the use of the chemical weapon on our streets. No, this is something you should not be doing. And we will send that very clear, you know, action will be taken. Uh, and uh, it, it's always Im important, I think, to remember that, that um, also that Russia, I think much of the approach that is often taken by Russia is seen by the West as Russian potential aggression into the West. But actually, from Russia's point of view, I think they often see it as defensive stance from themselves. Um, and if you look at Russian history, there is that sense constantly of wanting to defend um, Russia. It is a very curious perspective, and I often wondered that if we really had those type of ambitions with regard to Russia, there was the opportunity presented itself when, when the Soviet Union fell apart in the 90s. And uh, to, to think about that now, just uh, it, until we change people's minds over there, it will, it'll be a, a hard road to follow. You know, on that point, though, you know, rather than another reset, the new American administration <laughs> seems to seek a so-called stable and predictable relationship with, with Russia. And those are the Secretary of State's words. Do you think this is possible to have that type of relationship uh, or interaction, however you want to describe it? And what is Europe's view and role? Well, I think it. it, it um, one of the things that came out, of course, of the in in the uh, NATO communique was that uh, that term that it can't be business as usual with the way that Russia has been operating. I think it's one of the sadnesses, actually, one of the points I made when. Uh, we, uh, we had that incident in Salisbury and the UK responded, was that our argument is not with the Russian people, it's with where the Russian government is taking, and, and President Putin has taken Russia and the Russian people, and they could have chosen to go down a different route. 
Um, they could have chosen to have a, a, a different relationship in economic terms and so forth with uh, with the, the, the West, uh, with America and with uh, and with Europe. But they've not chosen to go down that uh, that particular road. And uh, so I think it is um, in terms of looking at uh, how we deal with Russia in the future. I think it's back to that sense of being clear with them that you know, about the importance of the territorial integrity of Ukraine, um, about not using chemical weapons, all of those issues and, 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 and showing that we are standing firm and standing, standing by those uh, beliefs and values that we, that we hold and that we have. Um, I think in terms of the European Union's relationship with Russia, obviously the, they have a geographical difference from the UK in that for members of the European Union are, as we referenced earlier, actually geographically abutting Russia and, and very much you know, feel that presence of Russia just over their borders. So the solidarity together of, of the collective, I think it is the, of, company, of countries coming together is very, very important for them. But they have, there is more of a sense of, of, the, of that living with Russia on your borders than perhaps obviously America has been geographically distant and from its size and even the UK not being, not abutting onto, uh, onto Russia. You made a very important point, which I think is worth repeating, and that is for all of us to make the distinction between the Russian government and the Russian people, and just as appropriate, if not more so, when we speak to China, which about China, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, my view, as you, you probably shared, is that most people in the world just want to live their lives, their, uh, live their livelihoods, raise their families, and, and have the personal freedoms and liberties that we enjoy here in the United States and, and you in the UK. And, and making those distinctions between the government and the people are, are important. Uh, in your response, you mentioned Ukraine. So it gets into another point here that there was a view by many in the United States that President Biden should have maintained sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline project. And there's breaking news here today in the last 24 hours that maybe there is a deal in the works that involves, um, uh, that involves Germany and uh, possibly the UK, I'm sorry, Ukraine. But setting that aside, what, what thoughts do you have in terms of Nord Stream 2 and what that means for, uh, for Europe and well, Russia. Yes, Nord Stream 2 has, has been a key issue. It, it's been obviously discussed around the European Union table when, I, when the UK was a member of the European Union. And it, is, it raises a whole number of issues. I mean, obviously there's the impact on the Ukraine, uh, uh, in financial impact on the Ukraine, right. um, but there's also the issue for Germany of wanting to have that, uh, that uh, access to um, that particular resource. So it raises a number of questions. I think it's difficult to say what should President Biden have said or not have said in his meeting with, Pre with President Putin or, or what should he have done uh, on this uh, issue, given that it does look, and obviously it's a moving situation, but it does look as if it may be possible that some agreement and some consensus will be coming uh, out of this in relation to um, Germany and Ukraine and, and a collective view as to as to what should be done. So I think it's very much sort of watch this space. But it's it's an interesting example of how um, an issue which uh, is at its core about access to uh, to to energy, actually um, a source of energy, uh, then has so much wider political ramifications in terms of the interactions and interrelationships. Yes, and the ability of Moscow to use that economic tool as a political tool uh, to get its way with 
with Brussels or countries uh, on its periphery. So it's, uh, you know, a, again, a very important issue. Another important issue, arguably even more important, has been the discussion uh, here in the United States about Russian cyber attacks and how do we counter those cyber attacks. Do you have any thoughts on what the right approach here is? And do you think key U.S. allies uh, play a role, including Britain, in dealing with this? Well, yes, I do. This is, I think this is a very important issue. And of course, what we see is that there's this, there's a whole breadth of cyber attacks that um, we, uh, we all suffer from. So it, it's a whole variety of, of aspects that we have to deal with. I think this is why it's so important that NATO is, has been starting to look more at that concept of, of what it can do in the cyber uh, arena. And the, uh, the UK was, I think, one of the first members of NATO to actually be able to offer some, uh, some resource in this cyber area to, uh, to NATO. For, so NATO can look at, at, at what it can be doing uh, to this. The first thing, of course, is, is actually about making sure that we are you know, absolutely up there in terms of our cyber security. It's a constant battle to be ensuring the cyber security, but the defensive measures that are necessary in order to ensure that cyber security are important. And I think that there's a whole number of ways in which this question of cyber security has become much more, um, we're going to use the term socialized among not just government, but, but businesses as well. Um, and uh, that, that is an important element of this of businesses recognizing the damage that can be done through cyber attacks, which can effectively then become attacks on a country potentially in terms of if you're talking about key utilities like energy providers uh, and so forth. So government needs also to be working with, uh, with business collectively on this issue. Yeah, that, uh, that was something that happened to us here in the United States, obviously a couple of months ago when uh, an attack, a ransomware attack on a private company involved in the energy sector affected, you know, the economic livelihood of the United States, at least the Eastern United States for, for several days and caused long gas lines. And so you can see how this works its way into the public domain as well. And you're right about the, how does the public sector and private sector work together to deal with this more, more seriously than we ever have before. Yes, and, and we had an example, it was back in, I think it was four, four years ago, where there was an attack that hit our, uh, it hit a variety of organizations in the UK, but including our National Health Service, our hospitals um, were, were hit by this. And uh, that's, uh, you know, when that happens, it's a wake up call about the cybersecurity that you've got in, in your system, but it's also a wake up call in showing that it's not just necessarily state to state, but it can be non-state actors, which have an impact into the public or private sectors, which has a wider effect on a country. Absolutely. And that, so cyber attacks gives me a chance to, to segue into China uh, because of uh, obviously a very important topic. And we know in the last few days, the media has been reporting that uh, there, there are attacks emanating from China uh, on Microsoft Exchange affected uh, hundreds of thousands of companies out there. And we have a it looks like strong statements coming out of the U.S., the U.K., the EU, et cetera. So it shows uh, coming together, if you will. Uh, by, by countries and organizations to address this. But more, more broadly, the PRC is the United States' biggest global competitor. Indeed, it's considered the pacing threat from a military perspective and poses a different set of challenges in a transatlantic relationship. For me, implementing the, the national defense strategy with a focus on China was my top priority as Secretary of Defense. And China was always an issue I raised constantly with, uh, with America's NATO allies. So, 
on this topic, the, the Biden administration did uh, has blamed China for this massive hack of Microsoft Exchange email uh, and accused Beijing of working with criminal hackers and ransomware attacks and other cyber operations. The UK and EU, as I mentioned, also blame China. Is this a case of China learning from the Russian playbook? And what do you think, again, America and our allies can do to, to push back more so than just statements? I'm not sure they've had to learn from anybody's playbook. I think they've uh, been had their own playbook uh, in relation to this. I think it's important that we have, the UK has stood by the US and as you say, others in, in Europe saying, make, calling this out. For some time, I think sometimes attacks took place and they weren't called out in this way. I think it is important when we're able to evidence and say, this is where this has come from, that we do make that absolutely, absolutely clear. In the way that uh, in the way that we look at this uh, at this issue, so I think that, that, that look the relationship with China is one of the great challenges that we all face at the moment, um, because China is a key player in the world economy. It's not going to go away. We can't isolate it in that sense. We have to find a way of working with and dealing with it. And there are huge issues. You've mentioned the cyber attack issue. There's the issue of human rights. Um, there's a, a big concern here in the UK, as I know there is in the US, about the treatment of the Uyghurs, for example, but there have been other human rights issues in relation to, to China. Um, there's a, there's a you know, I, I have the sense that if we could find a way of ensuring that China was operating within what we would recognise as the rules-based international order um, and playing its role alongside within everybody else within that framework, there would be huge advantages, I think, collectively for the world, for China as well as as well as uh, the rest of us. Um, but at the moment, of course, they 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 operate they operate in a different way in so many in so many different areas, and have not they're not just a big economic presence, but of course, increasingly, uh, an a presence internationally in the sense of their outreach into a whole wide range of countries around the world. The Belt and Road Initiative. But, but also just the, the way in which they have stepped into a number of countries to support infrastructure projects and so forth, um, with potentially long-term consequences for those countries when you know, the debt has to be repaid and, and uh, the, the implications of that. So we have to be very aware of China, but we can't simply brush China to one side and try to isolate and ignore it. We've got to find a way of being able to deal with it and work with it, as I say, it is, and, and I don't have a, you know, I don't have a single sense of, sentence answer to that, or even a single paragraph answer to that. It's the challenge that we face. But the important thing is for us to be able to work together. Those of us who have shared values, we're dealing with a completely different um, state in terms of China. Those of us who have shared values to be able to come together and find that way of working with China. I think you've summed it up very well. And it's, uh, you know, in my view, China is the greatest strategic challenge we will face in the 21st century. And as you rightly point out, you're dealing with a country that has the world's second largest economy, the largest military, a great deal of polit political and diplomatic heft, at least in its region and arguably globally. And so it's different than, than the Soviet Union was maybe 40 or 50 years ago in that regard. And so how do we as Western liberal democracies wanting to defend the international rules-based order, how do we how do we approach China going forward, I think is the, is the key question uh, going forward. Uh, and, and how do we get them on the right path? 
Yes, and there are key issues that, that we need China to be working with us on. So obviously the UK is hosting the COP26 climate change conference right. towards the end of this year. And uh, if we're going to deal with climate change, China has to be part of that. China has to be sitting around the table and committing. Now they've made some commitments already, but, but you, you can't leave them out of that picture. So we do need to be working with them on some, what are some really key issues of importance to us and to them. Uh, excellent point. I think China is probably the world's largest emitter right now of uh, carbon into the atmosphere. And so you're right, we have to get them on board and we have to get them to implement whatever they agree to. Um, I, I do want to narrow it down real quick because it's something of, of importance to the UK. You and I discussed Hong Kong before we got on here. And uh, we are obviously seeing worrying signs of continued deteriora deterioration of human rights uh, and the territory's self-governance in violation of promises made by China to Britain in 1997. Uh, both the Biden administration and the current British government speak of the need for global partnership on strengthening democracy. How do you think our countries can best cooperate on this specific narrow issue of Hong Kong? Because obviously it, it may give us a roadmap for addressing Taiwan and the Uyghurs and, and, and other issues that China sees as sovereignty issues for themselves. But your, your thoughts on this? Yes, well, of course, uh, uh, it, it is worrying what has been happening in Hong Kong. Um, as as we I touched on earlier when we, we were talking, uh, the uh, we have put in place a, a settlement system for people who uh, do have connections with the United Kingdom able to come uh, here and settle in the UK from, from Hong Kong. And that's an important step that we've taken to show our support to people there. Um, but at core, the heart of this is the fact that when the UK left Hong Kong, there was an agreement signed up to. There was, there was uh, you know, a, 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 a treaty which uh, was about the you know, one state but two systems. Um, that is now being eroded. We, can, we believe that that is still in place. So that was a, you know, a legal agreement that's still in place. China takes a different view on that. Um, and... and that there's, it's difficult in, in a sense to get over that, um, that difference between us, but it, we're very clear that that legal agreement still is in place and China should be abiding uh, by that. Um, what we've seen, of course, is over time, a gradual erosion of the position of Hong Kong and of the democracy in Hong Kong, and, uh, but that has become more, uh, more exacerbated in, uh, in recent months, in recent times. Um, I think it's back to the, uh, as, as you will know from the positions that you've held, there is no um, single way in which even you know, countries like the UK and America coming together can snap our fingers and suddenly everything is, is uh, changes. Um, but it is about, I think, a very important coming together, not just of us, but of other countries around the world to make those points to, to China. To, you know, to, to take action, we take action on some issues with, with China, um, but, and to just constantly be pushing this message and showing the concern that we have and, the, uh, and, and taking up these issues with them and challenging China on them. Uh, I remember when I was PM, I used to challenge China, raise human rights issues with them, for example. Um, what's important is that even if you don't appear to be getting anywhere on those issues, you, you shouldn't be silent about them. You should keep on with those messages, keep on making those points. 
it's a, it's a challenge we face. It's not like Hong Kong is one off. It's uh, there are any number of bilateral issues be between China and the in the UK, China in the US, China and regional countries. We have regional issues that involve everything from ASEAN to the South China Sea. We have global issues uh, with China, and you know, obviously, what what they've done to the Uyghurs in, in Western China is is abhorrent. And then uh, we we see. Chinese influence in international institutions from, you name them, within the UN, what the WHO, the WIPO, the WTO. So it goes on and on. I, I think you're right. It's the big question is how do we deal with China? They're not going away, but how do we shape, can we do a better job shaping their rise so that, again, it is within this international rules-based order that, that we built 70 years ago, 70 plus years ago in the wake of World War II, and it has brought so much prosperity and uh, growth for many, many countries around the world, but China seems to want to upset it and, and recraft it in its own image, its own views, which is autocratic in, in its basic form. So to me, that is, goes back to what we're both saying is the, the challenge with China, with Beijing. Yes, indeed. And uh, I think, I mean, I was looking uh, recently at some, um, a speech that uh, President Xi had given and referenced this question of the multi multilateral institutions, the rules-based international order. I think his point was that they weren't there when these things were being set up. And so why should, in a sense, why should they abide by those rules? Because they weren't part of the making of those rules. Um, so we have to challenge, we have to say, is there a way in which there, there is a set of rules that reflects our values mm -hmm. that we could, uh, that, that China would sign up to? But it's that sense, that issue about the values that we have that, of course, is so, uh, is so difficult because being an autocratic state, as you say, being a single party state, it, it's a completely different entity from the, um, from the United Kingdom, the United States or any of our, our uh, uh, democratic allies. So that is a challenge at the core of, of this. Um, I suppose I, I sometimes take the view that one would expect long term with economic openness and economic growth mm -hmm. that there would be a sense in China for people of wanting to see um, political change and democratic growth alongside that. But of course, we haven't seen that so far and it remains uh, that completely different entity in terms of its structure and the way in which it is governed. It's a great point. And uh, you know, you talk about Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. As you and I both know, all these organizations have rules and processes by which you can amend things and make adjustments if it's determined to be credibly unfair. But as we know, that's not the case. It's, uh, it's probably the only talking point they cling on to, but it's a specious one. And so, uh, again, we, it's, it's how do you build consensus around what those international rules and norms are? And China has a different view. They want, they want a, a, again, an international system crafted that benefits them exclusively. And we see that around the world. And you're right, again, to continue to make the distinction between the party and the people. And I, I think it is a big one. Um, one of the issues we faced last year, both the United States and continue to face, the United States and the UK, is, uh, is the cancellation, which the UK actually did of, uh, with Huawei over 5G networks in, in the UK. Uh, but Chinese investments obviously still play an important role in the British economy, a role that is likely to increase after Brexit. Will this lead, do you think, to the US and UK drifting apart on China, or can we find a way to work together on a common approach, transatlantic approach, to deal with Chinese investments? As, as we discussed earlier, China is everywhere. It's the world's second largest economy. And uh, we have investments, and, and you have investments there. We, uh, they have investments here. How, how do you deal with them at the economic level? 
Well, first of all, if I may, on, on the issue of um, Huawei and 5G, I mean, we started off with a slightly different approach because of the structure of our system from the United States. Um, but the sanctions that President Trump, in fact, imposed meant that it, it wasn't possible for us to continue down that road. And we, we went to um, the position that we currently have. The, the, but I think it's a very good example of how, in a sense, the West took its eye off the ball. Um, because we're in the situation where basically Chinese providers are you know, the key. There are two, two other companies in the West that, that do provide some of this, uh, this kit, but it's Chinese providers that, ha that have become dominant in this scene. And I think there is a, a need for the UK, the US, and indeed um, probably for the Five Eyes, you know, UK, US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, to work together on, on looking, um, but potentially with others in Europe as well as to how we can ensure that markets develop in, um, you know, in our countries that provide these um, resources, that provide the, these um, particular bits of kits for the future. We need to look to the next, next generation and say, how we, can we ensure that we're not having to rely on China for the provision of these elements? Uh, and uh, I think that's some important work that, 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 needs to, that, that needs to be done. I think it is possible, we, we do have, um, obviously significant Chinese investments in the UK. As you say, I mean, I took a trade mission to, to China. Um, we uh, have been increasing, some UK companies have been able to increase their exports to, uh, to China. Uh, so it, it, it is an important economy and we do need to be dealing with it. We here are introducing some further legislation in relation to the ability for the government to prevent uh, investments in what would be considered to be key areas in relation particularly to national security companies in relation to national security here in the UK so that it's possible to have that sense of um, that economic interchange but at the same time being able to say well no if it goes beyond this point that is too much and that's not what will be accepted. There are issues as to which sectors that should apply to as to what percentage um, influence of a company having should be the figure but that concept that we recognize there are certain areas where you have to say, no, this is an important strategic company strategically for the UK, for our security, and therefore um, we, we uh, want to limit foreign investment in it. In my several meetings I had in Brussels with uh, NATO, with our partners and allies, our allies, we would bring this issue up of what is the alternative? Because it is our responsibility then as Western democracies to provide an alternative to Huawei if we want to you know, retain control of our networks and make sure it's protected. So that's that's something we talked about quite often. And it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of disagreement politically here in the United States, but if there's one thing that Republicans and Democrats agree about, it is the strategic challenge, if not threat from China. So you now see legislation, and this began over the last two or three years, and we, we now have the business community on board with this. And I, I've, I've just seen it evolve over the 25 years that I've watched China, but we're now at the point where legislation has been introduced in the Congress, whereby we will look at reshoring or onshoring critical technologies and sectors and the billions of dollars being put behind it to do that. So there is a clear recognition that there are some areas where we need to make sure that we keep or, an organic capability and we make sure that the Chinese don't have that because of the nefarious ways by which they may attempt to use it. Yes, and that, that's important, yeah. Uh, just pivoting a little bit on China, what are your thoughts on pressing China to provide much more transparency regarding the origins of COVID-19 and agreeing to a new international inquiry by independent experts? 
Well, I think, I mean, look, it's in all our interests to uh, know everything that we can about how COVID arose, um, you know, the origins of COVID, so that we can look to ensure that we don't see this happening again. Um, I think the, the, the general consensus view is that it was, did come from a natural source uh, and uh, that, um, but, but more does need to be looked into. I think that, that, that again, and obviously the World Health Organization have been clear about this, that, that they need to take more time and more time needs to be given and more effort needs to be given to really mapping out exactly what happened so that we can learn from that um, because that is what is so important. You think this is a, a absolutely horrendous um, uh, virus in terms of its impact uh, that it's had on people, the number of deaths around the, the world. Um, here in the UK, we're increasingly looking at those who have had COVID but survived, but have long what we call long COVID. So this concept that it can lead to, to other issues and uh, other chronic problems for people. So we really do need to be looking to make sure that we can find out everything we can about how this arose, uh, about the source, about, and try to ensure that we can put steps in place that would uh, prevent anything like this from happening uh, again in the future. But it does sometimes take, take a long time for the scientists to actually be able to, to, to get to that point. And I think we, we have to recognize that it may be some while yet before we're, we're able to say that we are at that point. I completely agree. And for all the reasons you mentioned, it's important we find out what happened and why and make sure we work to prevent it again. What was in, in many ways most appalling was that the Chinese added insult to injury by trying to uh, pivot from the COVID damage and turn it into a diplomatic effort to tout uh, their autocratic system, the party's you know, efficiency and, and ability to handle the COVID better than Western democracy. So um, we, we haven't seen as much of that, but they still try and peddle that around the world. So I I share your view that it's important to get to the bottom of things here. Absolutely. Uh, Lady May, Teresa, you've been generous with your time. I'd like to wrap up with one last question, if you don't mind. Um, and that is uh, your thoughts on the future of the US-UK special relationship. You know, what, what is its role in strengthening the transatlantic alliance, uh, dealing with the issues of the, of the day that we just discussed, and where should we go to together from here? Well, first of all, I think, it, it, I mean, it is obviously our most important security and defence relationship primarily, and, and, and that I think should, should continue to be the case. Um, and it, it transcends changes in government. It transcends different presidents, different prime ministers. Uh, and it's, it's about a relationship that exists. Often people focus at the two leaders and say, well, what's their relationship like? But actually this is about more than that. It's about the relationship that we have throughout our government systems with the United States and that important security and defense um, uh, ability to, to work together on security and defense issues. It has been, I think, absolutely at the core of NATO. I think it is important that that continues and will continue to be absolutely there at the core of NATO. Um, but look, at when uh, the important thing is, as we would say, when push comes to shove, um, the UK and the United States have stood shoulder by shoulder in defense of our and literally in physical defense of our values uh, our, our democracy our freedoms our rule of law and and that has been so important and we will continue to to stand by side by side we bring different things to the uh, to the party if you like in terms of um, i think we 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 work well together we understand each other and because we have that core basis of those values we're able to work so well together 
in in our approaches. So I think um, it has it's a relationship that has stood the test of time and will continue long into the future. Well, thank you for that. Very wise words. And I couldn't agree more. So, uh, Theresa May, thank you very much for joining us this morning for our discussion today. Your answers and comments were very thoughtful and insightful, just as we expected. So thank you very much for your time today. It's been a pleasure to be talking to you, Mark. Thank you. I also want to thank you, the audience, for tuning into the second in a series of conversations I'm having with global leaders about the challenges and opportunities the United States, its allies, and its partners will face in the years to come. Lastly, please follow the McCain Institute on Instagram and Twitter for updates for future events and have a great rest of your week.